You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. We're going to start reading in verse 9, Genesis 6, verse 9, and read through the conclusion of the chapter. Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make with it lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Heavenly Father, we look to you now, Lord. We ask that, Father, you would be our instructor and our guide, Father, for what um, uh, really... uh, a meaningless uh, exercise to sit and just listen to a person talk. But Father, we recognize that as your word is open, and we call on you for your Holy Spirit, that Lord, as we hear these words, Father, we desire not just to simply hear a man talk, but that, Father, we would hear from you. Father, we pray that, Lord, you'd be pleased to speak through your word this morning as we all look attentively to it. Give us that attentiveness, Father. We recognize that we cannot do this without you. So, Father, we ask that you would speak to each one of us uh, through these uh, passages that are in some some ways quite familiar to us. So, Father, we pray that, Lord, you, you would do these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Our text begins with what the reader of Genesis will recognize as a somewhat familiar phrase. If you've read Genesis uh, more than once, you've probably recognized the, the phrase, these are the generations. Uh, you'll, come, you'll encounter that phrase. In fact, it, it happens the first time in chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And then again in chapter 5, if you look at verse 1, chapter 5, it's slightly altered, but it says this is the book of the generations of Adam. And we commented on that verse when we were there a few weeks ago. And then in our own passage, Genesis 6, verse 9, these are the generations 
of Noah. And this will also repeat in chapter 10, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 10, twice in chapters 25 and 36, and once more in chapter 37. And uh, when we're reading Scripture and we encounter these kind of phrases, let's not think for a moment that the Holy Spirit has any kind of stuttering problem. He does not have a stuttering problem. It's meant to uh, indicate structure markers. It's in, sometimes it's meant to indicate um, uh, emphasis, if you will. Uh, in this case, uh, we have structure markers. Uh, the author of Genesis, who I believe to be Moses, is uh, with, with these words indicating that we've come to a new, uh, a new passage. We've come to a, a new structure, if you will. Uh, so uh, this is principally organizing material. We come, you know, in short, we come to a new section. Now, Noah has already been introduced to us. He was introduced to us back in chapter 5. But here, if you look at verse 9 with me, um, the author begins to elaborate on Moses. We're told that Noah was a righteous man, that he was blameless in his generation, that he walked with God. And last week we looked at these in fact, we spent our time last week looking at these qualifications. You know, Noah is described as blameless. Um, he's one of the few folks in Scripture that is described that way. And one of the things I wanted to be sure to make clear uh, last week is in the rare times when Holy Scripture refers to someone as blameless, let's not draw from that 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 person was sinless. Um, Noah is certainly not a man who is sinless. We're going to discover that in due time. Uh, so then, what does it mean that he was blameless? Well, we saw that what this means is Noah is morally upright. Uh, he was a very upstanding man. Uh, we're told that Noah walked with God, and of course this was the source of his righteousness. He enjoyed intimate communion with God. We're told that he was righteous. Uh, so what we have... Noah undoubtedly, if we, if we have known Noah, we would have known him to be a very holy individual. Now, lastly, we took special notice of the, the, what we'll call the degeneration of the people of God. You know, in chapter 5, you know, you've got, you've got largely this genealogy, which we're really, when we're reading Scripture, we're kind of tempted to skip. And I, I hope that we've made enough noise about this genealogy, elaborating on this genealogy, the next time you're reading Genesis, you're going to say, I don't have to skip this one. Some of the names are a little tough, but uh, I don't have to skip it because you see, what is it? Genesis 5 is really, it's a, it's a family genealogy of the people of God. You know, it's a family genealogy. Um, you know, at the end of chapter 4, uh, Adam and Eve have a, a, a son. His name's Seth. He has a son. His name's Enosh. At the birth of Enosh, people began to call upon the name of the Lord what does that mean? We summarize that with two words. Anybody remember what those two words are? Worship and dependence. Yes, that's why I keep bringing that one up. I do want you to memorize that. They're calling on the name of the Lord. It's in worship and dependence. And it, 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 it's, it's in contrast with the line of Cain, who are very much self-sufficient and dependent on themselves, worshiping self. Um, Chapter 5 is a wonderful chapter uh, of the people of God, the, the Reformers. Uh, they, they, looked, uh, they looked to this chapter and, and um, 
saw this chapter as, as the great, um, the great people of God of old, if you will. And I, I will go as far as to say the church. Um, you know, you can get into some some debates with folks in regards to the church. There are a lot of people that believe the church begins in Acts chapter two, and certainly the church, in terms of the administration of the Holy Spirit, the way He's currently administering, begins in Acts two. But uh, I, I take the position that the church uh, are the people of God, uh, in whether it be in the Old Testament or be in the New Testament. And I take this passage to say, well, who are the church? Well, they're the bride of Christ, the Old Testament folks looking forward to Jesus, New Testament folks looking to, the, to Christ who has come. Uh, we're all the people of God. Uh, if you call on the Lord, on, upon the name of the Lord, you're you are a son or daughter of God. Therefore, you're part of the ecclesia, you're part of the assembly, you're part of the church. And the application that I made last week, if you'll recall, is that in chapter 5, we have this high note, don't we, where you see this growth of the church. People began to call upon the name of the Lord and worship and adoration. Sounds like a church to me. They're calling upon the name of the Lord. You have this high note uh, but by the time we get to chapter 6, we see that the church has degenerated all the way down to one single family, uh, Noah and his family. And uh, let me pause right there. I want to make an application uh, before we go any further. I mean, we're not even out of the introduction, but I, I want to make an application here to say that sin is a public problem. Sin is a, a public problem. And we have a tendency to think of sin in terms of only being a personal problem sometimes. But it's a public problem. Uh, sin is spoken of in our text in public categories. Look at verse 11 of chapter 6 with me. There's a phrase there. You see the phrase, the earth was corrupt. You see that? And it's repeated twice in verse 12. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Okay, so this is a public. This is, this is a, seems to me this is speaking in public categories here. Uh, verse eleven: the earth is filled with violence, and that phrase is repeated in verse thirteen. So we have uh, sin as a public problem. Uh, corruption uh, is easy to see as a public problem, isn't it? Um, in fact, it. It always violates the community in which it takes place, and it always it always violates anyone who comes in contact with it. Um, you know, when money is mishandled, it's a public issue. When power is abused, it's a public issue. I was talking with two fellows. I, I never met them before. I, um, they they wandered into the garage, and uh, I don't I don't want to give any names. I don't I don't want this happened locally, but. They were describing some things that happened to them just an hour before they came out to the garage. And as they described it, now I'm only hearing one side of the story, but as they described it, it was very clearly an abuse of power. Um, that's a public issue. It's a public issue. These are easy for us. I mean, some of us have encountered that. Some of us perhaps have been directly violated with that. But our text reveals one that I don't think we think of as a public problem, and that's intermarriage between uh, believers and unbelievers. And someone might be sitting here thinking, now where'd you get that from? Well, 
some of you who have been sitting in this series know where I'm getting that from. If you look back to Genesis 6, verses 2 through 4, where it says the sons of God are, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, they took as their wives any they chose. The position that I take on that is what will we have? The sons of God are, are, the, are the believing community. These are believing men. Uh, that's, that's the context of Genesis 5. And what are they doing? They're taking unbelieving uh, women uh, as wives. Uh, now, others take a position that what's going on here, the sons of God are, are fallen angels and they're intermarrying with, with, uh, uh, with women. I, I don't take that position. I, I take the position that there's intermarriage going on. But either way, whether you would take that position or not, uh, still intermarriage between believers and unbelievers is a public issue. How can I say that that's a public issue? Because it degenerates the church. The unbelieving party will always throw water on the fire of the believing party. And what does this, how do we raise the children? How do we raise the kids? Are they, are they growing up in a, with, a, with a single message or are they growing up with, with competing messages? A house divided can't stand, can it? Now, my argument here is anything that would serve to the degeneration of the church is a public problem. Anything that would serve to water the church down, anything that would serve to, um, to degenerate the church is a public problem. There's a common belief out there that what two consenting adults do behind closed doors doesn't hurt anyone. And you'll hear that a lot. That's not true. That's not true. Sin is a public problem. It's a problem in two ways. One, sin always violates somebody. And two, it influences. So we have violation and we have influence. I know this is a touchy one, um, but it has to be... We, I'm called to preach the whole Word of God, the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that I like and the parts that I, that I you know. Um, yeah, right. Um, any form of sexual immorality violates the purity of future marriage. We could say it that way. Um, so there's a violation. But secondly, it influences. I mean, how we live is an expression of how we believe. In fact, our behavior is our theology actualized, really, in a sense. And how we live and believe influences people around us, doesn't it? So even if it's just an influence, you know. In a previous message, I made it a point to say that those of us, um, sometimes, you know, those of us who've been walking with the Lord for a while, you know, we try to influence our, our family members. We try to be an influence and Sometimes we just don't think we're making any progress at all. And I wanted to encourage you in an earlier message that, listen, you're, you're influencing people around you more than you realize. And listen, folks take notice when there's a change in your life. They take notice, for sure. But the opposite of that could be said, too. You know, as parents, I mean, we, we want to impart our strengths to our children, but unfortunately... We also impart our weaknesses to them too, don't we? Um, sin influences others, and um, as it influences others, it becomes 
uh, it becomes destructive, doesn't it? Um, so sin is a public problem. Now, with this introduction in mind, let me state what I really want to cover this mess with this message because I knew with this introduction, you're going to be sitting in your minds right now. You're trying to think, okay, how do I... What do I do with everything I'm hearing? Well, you're probably likely to think that the title of this message is Sin is a Public Problem. And right now, if you think that way, well, that makes perfect sense to me. But the title of this message is not Sin is a Public Problem. I would rather look at something that's a lot more, uh, um, a lot more encouraging to us. Um, what I really want to look at this morning is what God is doing with Noah. Uh, what God is doing with Noah. But Sin is a Public Problem has a a big part uh, in that. There are four points that I want to look at this morning. They're really simple. This is going to be a really simple message. Nothing too complicated. One is Noah. You know he hears from God. Two, he believes what he hears. Three, he acts on his belief. And four, he finds salvation. Does that sound simple enough? Um, let's take those with that order. Namely, that he hears, Noah hears from God. He hears from God. Look at verse 13. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then if you skip down to verses 17 and 18, you'll see the Lord continues. He says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives, with you. Okay, Noah hears from God, doesn't he? Noah hears from God. How does he hear from God? I don't know. Does he hear his voice audibly? I don't know. Uh, what I do know is that he hears God. What does he hear? He hears a promise, doesn't he? God's making a promise, for sure. You think about these words, what a spine-tingling promise that would be. I mean, we know the story well enough that we can read through this, and sometimes our familiarity with the story blinds us to what's really happening. I mean, do you realize what God just said to Noah? I'm going to destroy everything. That would take you off your feet. Everything that breathes, I'm going to destroy. I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Why would God do that? The answer is clear. The earth is filled with violence through them. Sin seems subtle. Sin seems harmless, but it sets us on a destructive path. You know, sometimes you hear it said ideas have consequences. And it results in self-destruction. I have a quote here from one old preacher that I, I, I really admire. He is writing in the 19th century. It's a man by the name of Alexander McLaren. I don't know if his name is familiar to any of you or not. But listen to what he writes. Now, this is in the, this is in the 1800s he's writing this. And he writes... Quote, notice the universal apostasy. Now he's speaking on these verses as he writes. He continues, two points are brought out in somber description. The first, moral corruption. The second, 
violence. Bad men are cruel men. Now, I want you to pay special attention to what he has next. He says, when the bonds which knit society to God are relaxed, selfishness soon becomes furious and forcibly seizes what it lusts after, regardless of others' rights. Sin saps the very foundations of social life. It makes men tigers, more destructive to each other than wild beasts. All our grand modern schemes for the reformation of society will fail unless they begin with the reformation of the individual. To walk with God is the true way to make men gentle and pitying. End of quote. He's saying that when the bonds which knit society to God are relaxed, that's a, it's not the way we talk today. We wouldn't, I wouldn't write like that in uh, a sermon that I wanted to preach somewhere. It sounds odd. We don't really talk like that. It wouldn't have sounded odd in the day that it was communicated. But what does it mean? It, it means that anything that we do that would pry somebody, from being influenced by God's word or influenced by God is going to lead to selfishness that soon becomes furious and forcibly seizes what it lusts after. In other words, just even in the slightest influence, influencing. That's, I think that's why Jesus says, listen, you know, you, you lead these little ones to sin, it'd be better for you if what happened to you? If a millstone was put around your neck and you were tossed out in the sea, prying little ones away from the influence of God. You know, it might even be in subtle ways. Sin is a public problem, isn't it? What's going to happen? Selfishness is going to ensue. Where does selfishness lead? It leads to violence. It leads to violence. And I don't think I need to spend a lot of time applying this to the present era, our present hour. I mean, society has become so disconnected from its reliance and dependent upon God, dependence upon God that we're really on a self-destructive path, are we not? Um, I think this really helps us understand what's taking place all around us. And, and what does our current society, how do they expect to fix this problem? I mean, over and over again, what I hear is everyone's looking to Congress. And, like, really? I mean, I mean no disrespect to Congress, but how's, how's another man going to fix another man's selfishness? You're going to do that with legislation? I realize that many of them are promising to make changes, but these changes aren't going to happen that way. It can happen that way. I can't change your heart. You can't change mine. Congress is not going to fix the rampant self-centeredness and narcissism that's undergirding much of the violence that's taking place today. It's just not going to happen. It's, it's, uh, it truly shows how far we've lost our way to think that it could happen. It's almost a silly notion. But back to my point, Noah hears from God, and more specifically, Noah hears a promise made by God. If you look down to verse 18, God says, I will establish my covenant with you, and this is the first time we encounter this word covenant, uh, but the word covenant appears like over 250 times. Uh, it's a pretty prominent 
theme. It's a very prominent theme in the Scriptures. And it would be a mistake to think that this is the first time that God is making a covenant with humanity. You know, some of you will know a few years ago, you asked me to do a series on the covenants, and that was great. I mean, normally folks don't ask you to do a series on covenants. You you announce you're going to do a series on covenants, and we're like, okay, what's that? Um, hopefully that won't be too dry, but no, you actually asked me. You wanted to know about the covenants, and we did a series on the covenants. Um, we know that um, uh, covenants actually appear all the way at the beginning, don't they? That Adam was in covenant with God. You know, Hosea, um, um, you know, the Lord speaking through the prophecy of Hosea, speaking of Israel, the Lord says that Adam... Uh, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They, uh, there they dealt faithlessly, faithlessly with me. Uh, what's going on in that passage is God is likening Israel who has transgressed the covenant. Uh, he's saying, listen, uh, Israel, you've, you've done the same thing that Adam did. What did Adam do? He transgressed the covenant. What covenant? Well, Adam was in covenant with God. What kind of covenant? We call it the covenant of works, Right? For some of you, this is a review. Um, Adam was promised life in the garden while he walked with God in covenant obedience, but Adam transgressed the covenant, didn't he? Um, he transgressed the covenant. And Adam walked in that covenant as the covenant had. He was the covenant representative. So when Adam falls, what happens to humanity? What happens to all his posterity? Well, we all fall in him. In the same way, Christ Jesus walks as covenant head. And when Jesus succeeds, all in Christ Jesus actually enjoy victory. Uh, that's how the scriptures are put together. Um, so God is, uh, establishes another covenant. Adam falls in Genesis 3, but in Genesis uh, 3, verse 15, if you might look there with me for a moment, Genesis 3.15, I've made so many references to it that you probably can almost recite it now. But after the fall of humanity, God speaking to the serpent he kind of, he, he, he basically shares the gospel here. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that is between the serpent, that is between Satan and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, and here we get, a, we, we, we get the first utterance of the gospel message, don't we? Um, this is what we call the covenant of grace. Uh, this, is, this is all gracious. Uh, God would have, uh, the covenant has been breached. Um, God would have been justified to start over or, or not even bother. Uh, but instead, he shows great grace to Adam and Eve, doesn't he? Uh, and here we have the covenant of grace. Now, um, a full treatment of the covenant, Don't I'm not going to try to get into that this morning because you remember, I think we spent, what, six, eight, ten weeks or something. I don't remember. But... Let me just say this, you know, if we ask the question, what is a covenant? We could answer it with one word. We could say a covenant is a promise. Um, o. Palmer Robinson famously calls a covenant, quote, a bond in blood sovereignly administered. A bond in blood sovereignly administered. Um, I share that with you not only because it's a famous uh, definition that you'll, you'll read from time to time, but secondly, if we think of Genesis 3.15, you know, I, want to, I want you to see a connection here. A bond in blood sovereignly administered. 
In Genesis 3.15, God is promising that there's going to be a contest between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan. In other words, between Satan and uh, Christ. Christ is the offspring of the woman. The New Testament makes that clear. Now, in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, uh, in this contest, uh, there's going to be two injuries. Satan is going to have his head crushed, but uh, Jesus is going to have his heel struck. There's two types of injuries. You've got your choice. You want your head crushed, you want your heel struck. Alex will tell you, choose to have your heel struck. Don't, no head crushing. Uh, one is a fatal blow. The other one is not. But all kidding aside, what is this idea of Jesus having his heel struck? That's, that's the crucifixion on the cross. That's the shedding blood right there. And when we come to the Lord's table, uh, sometimes, well, I think almost all the time, if I, I don't try to ever forget it, uh, I always say that when Jesus, when he holds the cup up at the Last Supper and institutes the Lord's Supper, he holds the cup up and what's he say? He says, this is the cup of the what? The new covenant. Poured out in what? My blood. Poured out in my blood. God ratifies this covenant of grace, not with the blood of bulls or pigeons or goats, but with the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Now, under the... Um, under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, if you will, what we have here, starting in Genesis 3 forward, is we have one covenant of grace that's actually under two different administrations. We have the Old Administration, we have the New Administration. Under the Old Administration, God makes covenants with Noah, as we have here. He makes covenant with Abraham, He makes a covenant with Moses, He makes a covenant with David. We find these covenants. God, in short, always deals with us by way of a Covenant. But back to Genesis 6.18, the Lord is promising to destroy the earth with a flood, but He's promising to save Noah and his family. You know, one of the cool things about doing our Scripture memory verses is if you read Genesis 6.18, uh, you, you, you know, you read and um, Noah and, you know, you, you kind of surmise that Noah and his family are all being saved, but think of the spine-tingling message that Noah hears. When God says to men, answer this for me. If you were Noah and God was telling you he's about to, he's about to destroy every, all flesh on earth, what is immediately going to come to your mind? It's going to be your family. It's going to be your family. And just think, I mean, that puts Genesis 6, 18 in perspective. Um, verse 18, chapter 6, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. You, you, your sons, your sons, your wife, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. I would imagine Noah was weeping when he heard that. In Thanksgiving. I would think he was weeping when he heard that. Now, Noah hears from God. Secondly, Noah believes God. And that's the source of Noah's righteousness. Noah believes God. And God credits Noah as righteous. You know, that's, the Old Testament saints are saved the same way as the New Testament saints. They look forward to the Messiah 
who is promised in Genesis 3.15 and onward, we look forward to Christ who has come. I mean, we look back to Him, right? They look forward to Him. We look back to Him. Uh, they put their faith in the promise of a Messiah who is to come. We put our faith in the Messiah who has come. So when a, pen- a sinner puts his or her faith in, in Christ Jesus, the finished, the finished work of Christ, when we put our faith in what Jesus accomplishes uh, with that perfect life and offering that perfect life at the cross, uh, that perfect life is, is, is credited to us at the moment we believe, is it not? And we're washed and cleansed of those sins. So Noah believes with God. Uh, he believes God. He walks with God. Thirdly, Noah acts on what he hears. What is Noah told to do? He's told to build an ark. Um, this is a massive project. I mean, we have, we have some carpenters in the room. Um, this is huge. You know, verses 14 and 16 give us some detail. We're told there, the ark is to be made out of gopher wood. It's to have rooms. It's to be covered inside and out with pitch. We're told it's to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. That might not help us much. Uh, what is a cubit? Uh, scholars have kind of, in the ancient world, there, are, uh, there is some diversity as to what a cubit is, but down through the, the years, scholars have arrived at 18 inches, was probably the covenant, or probably the, the cubit, size of the cubit. Does anybody have any NIVs? If you have an NIV, it reads... The dimensions read 450 feet long by 75 feet wide by 45 feet high. Um, we don't have to get the conversion completely right to see that this is a massive project. I mean, when you think of a football field being 300 feet long, I mean, this goes on out, you know, on, on, and on out beyond the goalpost a good long ways. I mean, you're well out into the parking lot somewhere. It's a huge project, and historians tell us that it would not be until 1858 when a larger ship was built. It would not be until 1858 when a larger vessel was built. The vessel was the Great Eastern. It was 692 feet long, 83 feet wide, and 30 feet high. So not until the 19th century. And we could try to imagine the labor involved in building this thing. I mean, adding to the fact it's done with hand tools. I mean, trees had to be felled. They had to be milled. They had to be dried. And then all the ends would have had to have been, you know, they would have had to have been shaped so that the, the, the ark could be constructed properly. Um, you know, you, you weren't just going to go to Home Depot and get all these fasteners that we, you know what I mean? Um, um, I, I understand the noon lumber was involved in the project. I don't know if there's truth to that or not. That's just a joke. There's a, there's a, uh, no one must sing the commercial where the noon lumber sells hardwood. The art, well, skip that. Uh, the noon lumber was not involved. It's just a commercial. Um, they were not involved. Um, there was no lumber yard involved. Uh, he, Noah had to, he had to do all this himself. Um, Noah believed. And he acted on that belief. And I think it's safe to say that upon hearing from the Word of God, he believed the Word of God, and what he heard from God now became the governing principle of his entire life. I mean, his life, 
What are you doing? And, oh, what are you up to? Well, not too much. Everything's going, well, listen, I'm going to destroy the whole earth. What? I mean, from that moment, period, what's Noah on about? He's on about building an ark, isn't he? That's what his life is about. Um, and this brings us to our last heading, Noah finds salvation. I don't want to give anyone the impression that Noah is saving himself here. Someone might get that impression. I was worried as I was reading this through this morning. I was thinking, you know what? Someone might, uh, or as I was reading it through yesterday, actually, when this notion, someone might read this and think I'm preaching that Noah saves himself. He gets busy, he cuts down a bunch of trees, and he saves him and his family. Noah is not saving himself. Noah and his family are saved by the electing grace of God. Noah wouldn't even know there was going to be a flood if God had not called him aside and said, Noah, there's going to be a flood. Noah wouldn't have known what to do if God wouldn't have said, Noah, I want you to build an ark. Um, Noah and his family will be saved by the protective hand of God, but ultimately Noah and his family's sins will be atoned for by Christ on the cross, won't they? By Christ on the cross. So the Lord told Noah that he will destroy the earth with a flood. The Lord told Noah that he will save him and his family, that they will escape the waters of judgment by boarding the ark. The last thing I want to share with you is that this fundamental message hasn't changed. That's still the message today. In Matthew 24, 35, Jesus tells us that heaven and earth will pass away. It's not going to be by a flood, but it's going to pass away. The prophets speak of the day of the Lord. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now, somewhere down the line, someone began to suggest that we shouldn't preach this anymore. Don't preach this anymore. I think we should get back to it right away. Because the, same mes it, it, the message hasn't changed. Listen to what Peter says. Peter says that the, heaven, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 2 Peter 3.7, write it down, look it up. 2 Peter 3.7. How, how, how are we to be saved? Is there an ark for us to get into? Well, actually, there is. There is an ark for us to get into. It's not made out of wood. You see, wood, wood, wood's not, don't get into a wooden ark. Not on this one. It's not made out of wood. The ark is a person. The ark is a person. I mean, I want everyone to hear that. Some of you have trouble hearing me. The ark is a person, and that person is Christ. So how do we get in? We get in by hearing the word, believing the Word, and acting on that Word. In other words, we get in by believing. We get in by trusting. We get in by faith. That old ark is emblematic. It is a type of Christ, isn't it? And saves the people of God from the destructive waters of judgment. Does your life revolve around the promise? Have you heard the promise? 
I'm looking around, I think, without exception, you've all heard the promise. How do I know you've heard the promise? Because I've told it to you over and over and over again. I know you've heard it. Is that the governing principle of your life? Does your life revolve around Jesus? We've heard from God. Do we believe? Are we acting on that belief? If we are, we've found salvation, haven't we? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for these old stories. Uh, they're so familiar to some of us and that, Father, it's sometimes maybe they blind us from what actually is going on. Father, our hearts are so warmed by these stories. Father, as we see that these stories, the message certainly isn't just be like Noah. The message is what you, what you did to save Noah and what you've provided to save all of us. Father, as we look at that ark and that massive structure, Father, may it always lead our eyes to, to Christ Jesus. For Father, knowing his wives and his family, or his wife and his son's wives, uh, our sins are all atoned for by Christ. We will escape the wrath to come by getting into the ark who is Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you that you have provided such a wonderful salvation for us. So, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.